0: All right, good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Um, just wanted to pass on a praise this morning. Uh, some of you may have known that Anthony Barella went into the hospital uh, this past week and uh, had surgery Friday uh, to remove a blood clot uh, that was close to his brain, and it was actually um, moving his brain. And um, I was there with Trisha Friday afternoon and the doctor came in and said the surgery was successful and that they were able to remove the blood clot, um, that he would have to um, be 24 hours on his back. Uh, But when I called yesterday afternoon, he was eating chocolate cream pie. And uh, he texted me this morning and said that uh, he was going home today And uh, the prognosis is very good. He's getting strength, regaining strength back in his leg. And so we just praise the Lord. Uh, He's a wonderful God, and we thank the Lord so much for answered prayer uh, in Anthony's life. And I know if we had a share time, many of you could testify to the goodness of the Lord. Um, When you think you're not doing so good, uh, I'd encourage you to go visit people. There are others that are in worse shape than you and myself this morning. Um, I wanted to read this little passage. I know you've been reading through proverbs, and um, one of the things that the Lord brings to my mind a good bit is about is the word discipline um, it's important to have personal discipline in your life, but you know scripture' is clear about giving wisdom concerning disciplining children and um, as I was reading through the proverbs. In chapter 23, Solomon writes, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Pretty good wisdom. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. When I was a a young boy, I was struck with the rod, oh, once or twice a day. (sighs) And uh, I just, I thank the Lord for my father who uh, disciplined me, and he did so faithfully. And uh, I just look today at the culture we're in, and, you know, I don't know that we're living in the same kind of culture, that respects what the Lord says. And, and this is the wisdom that comes from the Lord concerning disciplining our children. And so I just thank the Lord for his wisdom and for my father obeying the wisdom that the Lord gives and um, it's good instruction for, for us. I had three sons in my home and I was faithful to use that rod. I actually had a paddle made when I was in New York State. I had a guy make me a paddle. And that baby is about that long and then the handle. And uh, it did the job. And uh, so I'm just thankful for that wisdom that God gives us. Um, it will not kill your children. For you to discipline them. So let's just uh, thank the Lord for answered prayer with Anthony. And uh, thank the Lord for the wisdom that he gives us. I do want to tell you um, the grace to read through uh, the book of Proverbs runs through Saturday. All right? And so, but if you need longer, you know, that's fine. But we're going to start next Sunday. You'll start the book of Hebrews and read through Hebrews And then you'll read the book of James as well in the month of October because it's a pretty long month. And so there's a lot of grace there. That's 18 chapters between the two books and you'll have enough time to to read those. And so um, I encourage you to do that. Text me, uh, email me. I've had so many people participating in that. And I really, really appreciate the wisdom that that you guys are gaining from, from reading the scriptures. So Hebrews in the book of James, for the month of October. All right, let's uh, stand and let's have a word of prayer as we start this morning. So Lord, we just thank you for your wisdom. Lord, we thank you that we have daily access to your wisdom as we open your word. And we thank you that Lord, you have given us, if we are in Christ, your spirit that lives in us. And so we're not alone. And um, everywhere we go, um, Lord, you never leave us. You never forsake us. So we thank you for that promise that comes from your word. This morning as we were reading your word and thinking about discipline, I prayed, Lord, that um, as parents um, there would be a faithfulness to discipline children. Um, Lord, it's for their good, and I really believe it's, it is the best loving thing that we can do for our children is, is discipline them, bring them into the right and narrow path, really. It's the narrow path, and, and you've laid that out for us. And so I just pray that um, for our parents this morning in this room, and I just pray for um, them as they raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and as uh, they love on their children, um, Lord, I just pray that as they, these children grow up, the first thing I pray is that they would come to know you and that they would grow in their relationship to you. And, Lord, that um, the parents would be the ones that would be the primary uh, disciplers, that they would disciple their children. And um, we just pray for them. We live in an ever-changing culture. And I just thank you so much, uh, Lord, for the family and how you set that up. And uh, help us to uh, follow your instruction. Lord, I do want to give you thanks for um, answered prayer with Anthony. And just thank you that our brother is doing well. And we just um, just commit him to you in his continued recovery. And Lord, just thinking of Robert Harper, I'm so thankful for, for Robert. I'm thankful for his life, Lord. Um, you talk about a man... And then I think of his wife, Doris, all the time. You just can't say, Robert, without saying Doris. And I'm so thankful for their investment in the lives of so many people. And that, um, Lord, he, was, he and Doris were just so faithful to invest in others and disciple them. And, and the fruits of that labor will continue on and on. So we just pray for Robert right now in a special way, Lord. And I pray for Denise and uh, for Ron, for the rest of the family, Lord, in this time. You would just uh, be their comfort. Thank you for that promise that you are our comfort. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.
1: Morning, church. Y'all can have a seat. We're going to start off our uh, worship time this morning with kind of a call to worship. Uh, All Creatures of Our God and King is a song that's been around a long time. I think it was written in the 13th century. It's actually a poem uh, by Francis of uh, Assisi. Did I say that right? Did I say it right? Is it Assisi or Assisi? But uh, So it's been done a hundred different ways, many different ways. We're going to do kind of a modern version, but the a melody is the same, so you guys can sing out with us. to read together this morning corporately as the body of christ um, psalm 145 verses 3 and following so let's all read that together great is the lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty And on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness.
2: (laughs) The splendor of the King Clothed in Majesty, let all the earth rejoice. All the earth rejoices. Here absence himself in light, and darkness tries to hide. He trembles at His voice. He trembles at His voice. Craig around your glorious throne there is the
0: As we were singing that song. You know, the the primary, one of the primary, you can't say the primary, but one of the primary ways that we adore the Lord. This might sound different to you is through obedience to Him. So one of the ways that we adore the lord is obedience that means this is not a suggestion manual it is the manual how do you like that we could just close in prayer and go home we're not going to actually i i have to tell you a little bit about my week before we get into the text I'm not focusing too much on my hamstring which is really hurting had a young man ask me at the beginning of the year if I would like to play softball in a mature adult league. I won't mention his last name. His first name is Earl. <laughs> this week I was running to first base. I hit the ball. Get a pretty good shot to shortstop. And there was a guy on first. He flips it, the shortstop does, to the second baseman. And I'm like, uh-uh. They're not going to double me up. And something happened about three-quarters of the way to the base. There was this little pop. And then, of course, a man doesn't go down, right? I'm not doing that. And I hobbled, and I was safe. (laughs) And I even ended up batting one more time before I told the coach, can't do this anymore. But that was just a small part of my week. Um, this week's subject is discipleship, and you have there on your bulletin a message. Go home and read it. Um, I was sitting at the computer on Thursday, or Friday morning, doing a little bit of typing uh, for you guys this morning on that particular message, and I would studied it all week long, And I'm sitting there, and I'm halfway through, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this isn't the text. Now, I don't know how to explain that to you guys, because you're like, well, yeah, that is the text, because you chose it. Well, I did choose it, but it wasn't the one the Lord wanted me to share with you this morning. So I'm like, really, Lord? It is Friday. And it needs to be on the subject of discipleship, and it is. And so... I finished typing up what you have in front of you and began working on what we're going to look at this morning, and so there you go. There's your free sermon, you can go home and read it and study it, it's a great passage of scripture. But the Lord has me this morning for our purposes as we talk about discipleship in Matthew chapter nine. So I want you to go to Matthew chapter nine. I don't have notes for you because I wasn't quite sure how to work the next page. (laughs) So I'm computer challenged. But um, I think that it'll be okay. You'll take notes and you can even scribble on that paper that I gave you. Or you can find something else to scribble on. Um, But I think it's really important that you do take notes this morning And do digest kind of this idea of of discipleship. And specifically, we're going to focus on a disciple. And I believe a critical attitude of a disciple. An attitude that is very critical in this process of of making disciples. Because it's clear from the scriptures that the Lord wants us to make disciples. True? True. I mean, we can't argue with that. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 gives us, or 19 and 20 specifically, but I like to start with 18 because the Lord Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Mm, go therefore and make disciples. So the authority piece is really important because he has authority. So what does that do? It erases, it's supposed to help erase the fear that you and I would have. Um, there's no reason to be fearful. He's with us everywhere that we go. That doesn't mean the fear's not gonna take place. It's gonna happen, because we're human. But the reality is that scriptures teach us, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, a process of making disciples. The process. And the process is this, as you are going, right? He says, make disciples. Convert people. You say, oh, 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 time out. I don't convert anyone. No, you don't. And I don't either. But the responsibility is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. And there is no opt-out clause. No opt-out clause. So all of us, all of the disciples that the Lord commissioned, all of us that are in Christ... Have the responsibility and the mandate to make disciples. Hey, Lord, I can't do that. That's great. That's the first prerequisite. You can't do it. And I can't do it. But we can do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. We can do it. Because you see, in a person's life, we want them to come to Christ and we want them to mature. And we want to, what, reproduce so that they're out there making disciples themselves. And do you know in, the, in, in Matthew 28, he says, as you're going, make disciples. But then he continues with the process, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why baptize them? Identification. When a person comes to Christ, they identify themselves with Christ through baptism, through his death, burial, and resurrection. A lot of followers, right? A lot of people who were discipling, but Jesus Christ said, hey, look, one of the distinctives is that as you go and make converts, as you see people come to Christ, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that word, baptizo, There means to immerse. So we're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. There's a reason that we immerse. This message today is not about baptism, but it is very important that we understand that concept. Because one that's baptized, when we have baptism, is identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in obedience to Christ, is being baptized. It's a testimony. It's saying right there, hey, I belong to Christ. I'm his. But he doesn't stop in the process. What does he say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Whoa, time out. That's when we're like, okay. I can see somebody come to Christ, but teaching them, right? The Lord is telling his disciples, teaching them all I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, just in case you didn't get it, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, teaching them. And teaching is a process. It's a process. When when someone comes to Christ, a a born again believer, a new believer, they're not going to know everything that you know. And you can't expect them in one week to go, hey, I'm all these things that have been like these. Attachments to my life I'm immediately getting rid of I'm sorry It doesn't always happen like that I remember my dad sharing His conversion experience with me He said that I got saved Through a Billy Graham Crusade When I was watching it on TV The next day I stopped smoking Because I knew that's what the Lord Wanted me to do Now I'm not up here to tell you what to do and not do But I'm saying the Holy Spirit's the one who works in the hearts and the lives of those people. He's just using you to teach them. They're not going to look like you immediately. It's a process. Because you look at that, teaching them to observe, oh, well, that's a big old word there. What were the things that Jesus taught his disciples? See, and that's what he wanted them to do. Hey, you go, you make converts, you baptize them, you teach them, and then there's just this reproduction. Do you see that happening in the church today a whole lot? I see it happening some, but I don't see it happening a whole lot. And so it got me to thinking about this, and this is what was happening Friday when I was typing. Like, if I'm gonna make disciples... Then I need to understand that I am a disciple. I'm a learner. Who's my teacher? The Lord, the Holy Spirit is my teacher. Does that ever stop? No, it doesn't. See, we're always learning. Isn't that right? We're always learning. The Spirit of God is always teaching us. Now, that was the first introduction to the subject this morning. First piece. I gave you there some scriptures to look up because discipleship is such a big, it's a vast subject. You know, one of the passages I really encourage you to go home and read is Titus chapter one and two. And look at that older man, younger man, older woman, younger women. Look at that. Very key in the church. Older women are be teaching the younger women. Older men are to be setting the examples for the younger man. That needs to be happy in church. There's all types of levels of discipleship. But I want to ask you, first of all, the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean? Well, I'm going to give you a definition. All right? A disciple is one who follows the master. That's Christ. Who follows the master and leads others to do the same. That's the disciple. That's a very simple definition, but I think pretty profound. The disciple is one who follows the master and leads others. So if I'm, listen, for example, I'm following the master. I can say I'm doing that. How many of you could say today, you're doing that? Yeah, many of you could. But then look at the second part. And leads others to do the same. Leads others to do the same. So we all have the responsibility as Christians to lead others to do the same, and that begins with that process that is outlined for us in Matthew 28, 19, 20. Make converts, baptizing, and teaching. (laughs) How many are on board with that? Sound good? Remember, no one is exempt from this. I put in my notes, there is no doctor's excuse. I could use a doctor's excuse. There is no doctor's excuse, right? The Lord has told us in His Word exactly what He wants us to do. These are my thoughts as I was typing Friday. There's never a point in which a disciple of Christ would say, All done, right? In fact, as one continually learns from the master and begins to mature, there should be a desire, and I put in parentheses, an obedience to share the gospel and invest in the lives of others in order that they would do the same. That is going to take discipline and commitment and time. Yeah, but that I don't have time. Make time. I was going to share this story later But I'm going to share it now The Lord Man when you're teaching something The Lord just pounds you the week of I don't know how many of you have experienced that He's like "All right, dad you're going to teach on making disciples Let's see how you're going to do with this So after I hurt my hamstring On Tuesday I went home Cleaned up I was driving back to the church I get to a four way stop on Brewster Road This guy's in front of me He gets out of the car Puts it, obviously puts it in park, gets out of the car, comes back there, and he's, I got my window down, and he says, I need help. And I'm like, well, how can I help you? And he said, I need some gas. I said, great, I can help you. As I'm thinking about where we're gonna go to eat gas, I'm like, this is not about the gas. This is about opportunity. This is about exactly what I'm going to speak on Sunday. Thank you, Lord, for the heads up, even though I didn't know it was not 1 Corinthians 11 at the time. And so I reach into the middle console, and I'm I'm scrounging around for a track. I'm like, please, Lord, please, please, please. You know those little Knowing God Personally booklets? I had one. I actually had two, one, one for another time. And so I'm like, okay, I'll give you gas. I'll get the gas for you. So we drive down to the gas station, put some gas in his car. He has a little bit of conversation with me. I introduce myself to him. He hugs me He says, "Dad, thank you. I said, listen, I got something for you. I want you to read that. And if you have any questions, the number and address are on the back. Hadn't heard from him. But you know what? That's step one, right? Planting seeds. and then the world knows, right? Somebody else may be watering those seeds. I had a really interesting story told to me last night. And, and I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. We're at the Miracle League softball game. And I had gone back last spring to watch Nick play baseball. And dude, he did awesome last night. Two home runs, awesome job. So the youth participated. I was talking with Brian before. And Brian said, hey, Thad, you remember the lady, or as Michelle said, remember the lady that, was, that you were talking with back in the spring? I'm like, yeah. And she was out of church at the time. He says, she's back in church. God had me go that night in the spring to watch Nick, he wasn't feeling well, but you know what that night was about, that lady? At least about her. You know, when we think about it, guys, these aren't accidents, these people that we run into. They're not accidents, God has preordained that that would take place. He knows it's gonna happen. He knows we're gonna walk up on that person. So all of us have the responsibility to invest in order that we would see converts They'd be baptized and they'd be taught and they would be reproduced. Well, all right, question. Why should there be a sense of urgency? You've got to think about that. Why, why so urgent? Well, number one, because God told us to do it, but I want to read to you some statistics. And this is pretty, um, pretty incredible. It is estimated that over 30 million people worldwide will die without Christ this year. And of the 300 million people in this country, it is estimated that 41% of the people are radically unchurched. I can say that. In fact, I could even see that percentage being a little higher. And it's continuing to go up. Vance Havner, who lived in the 1900s, um, one of my favorites. If you don't have any Vance Havner books, Go find them. Nowadays, you can get on Google. You can find any book you want to. You know, he was the most quoted evangelist in the 20th century. A lot of wisdom with, with Vance. I really love his writings. And so he's writing about the time that he lived in the 1900s and preaching. No, he started preaching at the age of 12. He was ordained at 16. <laughs> man, that's, man I, was, I was like, wow. That's okay, isn't it? It's Okay. He began preaching at the age of 16. He wrote this about his time and his life. He says, the tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. Do I have that one up there? I don't. The situation is desperate, but the saints are not. A lot of lost people out there, guys. There are probably a lot of lost people in our neighborhoods. A lot of lost people in our schools. There are lost people who sit in churches every Sunday. See, there's this should be this urgency. Make disciples, make disciples. How in the world are you going to find out where somebody is spiritually unless you're investing? They may even be a new believer who has not matured, who's been right there stagnant and needs somebody to invest in them. So be that person. Be that person to say, yeah, I'm willing to invest. So being a disciple of Christ means one moves from being self-centered to other-centered. See, if we're going to be disciples of Christ, we can't be self-centered because we're really good at that. We don't even need anybody to teach us how to do that. Do you have to teach a child how to be self-centered? No, they just come out that way. Me, 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 me. They're crying, they want to eat, right? They're crying when they're two. They're crying when they're five. They're crying when they're 16. (laughs) Hey, look, we cry at 50 and 55 and 60 because life is about us. A lot of self-centeredness. Well, here was all that leading to this. I believe the key component is found in Matthew nine and it's compassion. I believe that, just as sure as I'm trying to stand up here and not fall down, I believe that. The key component is compassion. How do you see people? So I have three lessons for us that we learned from Matthew chapter nine. Look at verse 35 so we can bring it into context. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 35. This is what Jesus was doing. Verse 35 says he was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He was busy preaching, teaching, healing. At this point, the disciples just, or hanging out with him. But as you get to Matthew chapter 10, what begins to happen? He had been doing it all, and you get to chapter 10, and what does he do? It's class time. You've been watching. You've been listening. Now guess what's going to happen? You're going to go do it. It's like speech class. If you take a speech class, you're going to speak. You're going to take notes. But eventually, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get behind a lector and speak. In high school, I took a class. It was a speech class. I had no idea I was going to have to stand up and speak until the girl in front of me said, hey, Thad, you're going to have to stand up and speak, to which I said, no, I'm not. And she said, you're in the wrong class. This is a speech class. Well, I don't want to speak. Hey, don't you know these disciples were nervous? Scared? Maybe, no thanks, not real crazy about this idea. Then the Lord spells out the instruction for him in chapter 10, read that this afternoon, man. Whew. Hey guys, being a disciple is difficult. Making disciples is difficult. But the common thread is this. Jesus Christ. He's the one we're following, and he's the one we need to be obeying. He says, make disciples. So, what can we learn from the master in this text? Verse 36 tells us the first thing. We need to see as Jesus saw. Look what it says. Verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep Without a shepherd. That word seeing there is an interesting word. It means to know intimately. It means to be intimately acquainted with the condition of the people. Jesus was fully man, but he was also what? Fully God. He knew. He knew what was going on in their hearts and in their minds completely and perfectly say, well, we're at a disadvantage, right? Well, we are, because we are not omniscient. We don't know all things. But we do know, as we step out of our door, as we go to our job, as we go to school, we can see people who are lost. Would you agree with that? We can see that. We can see the desperation of our world. They're desperate. The question becomes, will we submit to the command to make disciples or engage the process of disciple-making? Will we submit to the command? Will we engage in the process? There's a story told, pretty interesting story, about some seminary students. This happened several years ago. Um, some researchers decided to find out if seminary students are good Samaritans. And so they met individually with 40 ministerial students under the pretense of doing a study of careers in the church. Each student was instructed to walk to a nearby building to deliver an impromptu talk into a tape recorder. Some were told to talk on the Good Samaritan parable, while others were told to talk about their career concerns. Meanwhile, the researchers planted an actor along the path who, as a seminarian approach, groaned and slumped to the ground. They found that more than half of the students walked right on by. The researchers noted some who were planning their dissertation on the good Good Samaritan literally stepped over the slumped bodies as they hurried along. When I read that, I thought, well, we can't be too critical because how many bodies have all of us stepped over or gone around in our lifetimes and the Lord said Thad you're not doing that and in fact this body's getting out of the truck and coming to you and saying I need help (laughs) oh my goodness hey guys and the opportunities are boundless and I want to tell you something discipleship begins in your home begins with your children share with them the gospel share it all the time share it till they puke Share it. They need to hear it. You say, yeah, but they know Christ. Share the gospel with your children. Share the gospel with your children. Share the gospel with your children. Baptize them, teach them. Baptize them, teach them. You only have to baptize them once. But teach them. And continue to teach them. Opportunities are boundless. They start in our home and they move out from our home. You know, one of the disadvantages when I was in college, in Bible college, was being on that hill, that old hill there that we used to... The camp, it was so beautiful on Pawnee Avenue. I love that campus. But one of the disadvantages for the students was being on that hill. And do you know, doc, uh, Doctor, he could have been, I.J. Fontenot. He was one of our professors. That man always had keys in his pocket, change in his pocket. He was jiggling those keys and change all the time. And if you took I.J. Fontenot's class, you knew that. But that man could evangelize. And do you know how um, much we needed to understand the importance of evangelism? In our evangelism class, he would assign us to go out and to witness the three people. So if you took his class, you had to go witness the three people. Now, when you're telling that to a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, like, whoa. Guys, you know what? The Lord told his disciples to go make disciples. And as believers, he's told us to do the same. We need to see people like the Lord saw people. Well, so are we seeing them or are we just walking around them? One quick story. I was in, first time I ever was presented with that mind, I was in Shea Stadium in 1992. That's where the New York Mets played baseball. And I remember sitting there and for the first time in my life it happened. That day. I'm sitting there eating my hot dog that was 10 bucks, drinking my Coke and this ha- I re- you know, some things you remember like it was yesterday. I remember this like it was yesterday. All of a sudden, I wasn't seeing the crowd there as either Reds fans or Mets fans. I just saw the people. And I thought, oh my goodness. How many of these people in this stadium right now are on the road to Destruction. And every stadium I've been to, and I've been to quite a few, even Razorback Stadium. Imagine there are lost people there too. But but when I walk into a stadium now, I don't have this, wow, look at this great stadium. I'm looking at all those people going, they need Christ. We need to have compassion as he had compassion. Look what it says. He felt compassion for them. Tells us why. We'll look at that in a second. So I put, we need to have compassion as he had compassion. The verb to have compassion is used in the New Testament only by the synoptic gospel writers. The word by definition means to feel deep sympathy for. It suggests a strong emotion. Hey, we just got back this summer from England, and we're in London a few days, and, and I remember standing on a corner by the M&M store. That is a really cool store. And looking at all the people that are lost, dying, without hope. The scriptures tell us we don't have to guess why the Lord had compassion. First of all, it says Jesus saw them as distressed. It's an interesting word. The word means troubled or vexed. It can mean aggravated or upset. You don't have to be in the world very long to see this definition. That's real. It's real. It was real then for Jesus. Real for the disciples then. It's real for us now. It points to problems that people face apart from the Lord Jesus. You know, how many times have we used the phrase, I do not know how unbelievers handle that. Can I tell you something? They don't. You say, yeah, they look all right. Looks are deceiving. Right? They have to rationalize in their mind what happens at death. I mean, all of them have gone to funeral homes. What happens to these folks? Well, they're just gone is it is it not it we know it's not it right we know that everyone's going to live eternally and we know everyone's gonna live eternally either with Christ or apart from Christ so how desperate is the situation it's desperate I have family members that aren't saved so do you probably I have friends that aren't saved so do you probably I don't know about you, but I can use excuses pretty good. I'll get to that tomorrow. The Lord told me this week, you're going to get to it now. He reminds me, like that, you just came back from me, and yeah, it was great. But it's easy to get back and get comfortable. And it's easy to be in our seats and get comfortable and forget there is a world out there that is lost and dying The picture also here of this word distress is of heavy burdens. (laughs) Here it is. Second thing that the Lord sees here. He saw them as dispirited. It's a different kind of word. The word has the meaning of being downcast or thrown down, it points to a helpless condition. Listen, and people are helpless without Christ. They handle it, you say, yeah, they handle it through drugs, and they handle it through alcohol. I'm going to drink myself away from this problem, and guess what happens? They have headaches, and they wake up the next morning with a headache, and it's the same headache they had when they went to bed. And the problem's still there, times 10. They live without hope. Hey, can I, how many of you this morning are grateful that you live with hope? Man. I got that message from Anthony, seeing him this week. Boy, he's thankful. Hey, whatever happens to that, I'm going to be with the Lord. If he chooses to keep me here, fine. That's hope. But how many rooms would you walk in in a hospital where they'd be like, they have no hope? This is an interesting word picture here. Because the word picture, you can actually um, look in Psalm 23 and look at this word picture of what it means to be dispirited or downcast or thrown down. In fact, in his commentary on Psalm 23, Philip Keller describes how sheep can get turned over on their backs and not be able to get up by themselves again. Such sheep are called cast or downcast. These sheep flail at the air with their legs up, but they can't get back on their feet without the aid of the shepherd. What does it say here in chapter 9? Like sheep without a what? Shepherd. Thank you, whoever said that. So they're without the aid of a shepherd. Left in this condition, Keller writes... Helpless and vulnerable to their enemies, they will die after a few hours or days. He writes, what a picture of sinners apart from the good shepherd. (laughs) They're flailing. Outwardly, sinners may look calm and comfortable, but Jesus sees their hearts before God. Their legs are up in need of help. And how many people are out in our world, maybe even some in this congregation, whose legs are up and need help? Great news is the Lord is the helper. And he can change their lives. He's changed yours if you're in Christ. So we need to see him as the Lord sees him. We need to have compassion as the Lord had compassion. Whoa. Whoa. And thirdly, we need workers in the harvest fields. <laughs> we need workers in the harvest fields. And you know, here's the mistake that's made in churches, one of the potential mistakes. Well, I got to go to a foreign field to be a missionary. No, you don't. Right in your neighborhood, there's lots of folks that need Christ, that need you to be committed to the process of sharing the gospel and baptizing and teaching. Now, Jesus wants you to see yourself as a worker in his harvest. Up to this point, Jesus was doing all the work. <laughs> but as one could see in the following verses, Jesus begins to give them the work and puts them out in the fields. Some may say, hey, time out, hold on. This, this particular command here is only for full-time ministry folks. I've got great news for you. If you're a believer in Christ, you're in full time ministry. <laughs> Isn't that good? We solved that problem. You're in full time ministry. Listen, if we've tasted the salvation of the Lord, we know how good it is. And we want people to come to Christ. I'll close with this quote by C.H. Spurgeon. He's one of my favorites. I just, I can't get away from Spurgeon. He wrote this. In commenting on this section of scripture, C.H. Spurgeon said, these verses weighed on his heart more than any other verses in the Bible. And you know what? You're like, wow, okay, that's, wow. You know, as I get older in the Lord, I'd have to say, I think he's right. Because we can't just say, well, I'm saved, I got my fire insurance, I'm doing good, I just want to enjoy the fellowship of the believers, and I don't want any responsibility. The Lord didn't plan it that way. Remember, we started out with this. Hey, this is not a suggestion, manual. It's to be followed. And I don't know about you, but the Lord is working in my life on the compassion piece that I would see folks like he saw them. There's a man in our church named Phil Hanson. He built this pulpit. And I'm very thankful for that, Phil. Where are you? Hey, Phil. I'm used to you being back there. So, after, this is really incredible. And I was telling him this Friday. So, after I did all that typing of the first sermon, and the Lord's kind of saying, hey, this is really what I want you to do. Um, And I'm like, hey, Lord, I've already done that. And he's like, this is what I want you to do. I've already done that. And, you know, I was having a wrestling match. He won. And,. And then Phil had texted me the day before and said, hey, I'd like to come see you tomorrow. And I am always like, why do people want to come see me? That's just what pastors do. There's all, you're like, okay, what do, what do they want? So that's going through my mind. I even texted him, hey, Phil, what is this concern? And he said, I got a ministry opportunity. He begins to share with me Friday morning about this. And I'm like, I was literally sitting there going, oh my goodness, Lord, it is not about me at all. It is all about you. I can have my plans, I can work all week long on 1 Corinthians 11, and you can say, hey, Thad, it's not 1 Corinthians 11, it's okay, I'm gonna lead you through the other, and I'm even gonna give you a live illustration. So Phil, you come and share about what the Lord is doing in your life about making disciples.
3: I get a hold of yes, I do have to have this. Thank you. I want to uh, start by giving you a little bit of a backstory. I never heard that expression much until about, I don't know, two or three months ago, my oldest son was telling me that he was talking to his grandson, who's with us back there today. But anyway, he said he started... Instead of with the gospel, he'd heard my grandson had heard the gospel, of course. But my son started back with the with creation with my grandson, and so my grandson said, "Oh, you mean like that's the backstory?" I said, "That's the backstory. All right. So I'm going to start with the backstory, so that it will give context to what has led me to the point where I am today." In 1972, the church that I grew up in, in Gulfport, Mississippi, and was still attending, and Jackie was attending with me at the time, needed a new pastor. So the church called a pastor, and the young man who came had graduated from Southeastern Bible College just a couple of years before, had spent two years in the Army, and had gotten out of the Army, and was looking for a church to pastor, and this church called him. His name is Bob Faust. His lovely wife is Cheryl. Some of you may have heard of him, may, have know, may know him. I don't know. But anyway, so Bob and Cheryl came. He became our pastor, and Jackie and I were prepared to get married in June, on June the 4th of 1972. See, I know the date. I remember that date. June the 4th, 1972, Jackie and I were married, and Bob did the ceremony. It was the first wedding ceremony he did ever in his pastorate. So they were special in our lives, and we were kind of special in their lives. After a number of years there, about five or six years there, pastoring Trinity Bible Church in Gulfport, Mississippi, he decided, with the Lord's guidance, that he needed to go back and get his master's. So he left and went to Capitol Seminary in the D.C. area. To get his masters so he left our little church we stayed in touch with them for a little while and then after he completed his masters he went to a church in the northeast part of the nation now i don't know if any of you have ever been there i've been there you go up in the north we got people that's from there it's an ungodly place isn't it she will tell you it's a very the people there are it, it's it's a different world than we have here in the South. It is completely different. So anyway, when, they went, when Bob and Cheryl went to the Northeast, Jackie and I kind of lost touch with them. And we, we, we just, for whatever reasons, anyway. In 1985, the Lord moved Jackie and I to Birmingham, Alabama. The company I worked for said, we need you to be in Birmingham. So we came to Birmingham. We knew really no one in Birmingham. But I also knew that Cheryl, Bob's wife, was originally from Hueytown. Bob is from Indiana, incidentally. But Cheryl was from Hueytown. I remembered her last name. And the reason I remembered her last name, because it was easy, because I knew his name was Robert Dean Faust. Her maiden name was Dean. So she was still Cheryl Dean Faust. So that made it easy for me to remember her maiden name. So I decided, I said, you know, I'm going to f- see if I can find what has happened to Bob and Cheryl. So I got, back then we had white pages, kids. We had we had these books and they had all these phone numbers in them with names and stuff. And And so I got the white pages out and I started looking at Deans in Hueytown and I said, hmm, let me call this one. I called, lady answered the phone and uh, I told her my business, what I was looking for, who I was. She said, well, Cheryl is standing here. Would you like to speak to her? I went, wow. God, how did you do that? You know? So it turned out that they were ministering in Auburn Alabama. Cheryl was up here visiting her mother so we got back in touch and stayed in touch. Bob was part of a relatively new thing at that time called Save-A-Life. Now I know most of you know about Save-A-Life but I'm going to give you a 30,000 foot view because there may be new people in here that don't have a clue what Save-A-Life is. All right Save-A-Life is an organization started by a man by the name of wells goble who could be i i i classify him as a visionary that knew how to put things into action he could envision things and just boom make it happen those are people that knew wells i didn't know him well but i got enough of him to to get that. And according to David, he could be challenging at times, couldn't he? <laughs> David, you'll have to get to hear his testimony sometime about Wells. But anyway, uh, had started this organization called save a life. Save a life is a ministry that deals with women, primarily pregnant women. And th- they're in several different situations. Some are pregnant and they have no resource No outside resource whatsoever to help them through their pregnancy. Save-A-Life can help those women. And many of the women in here, I say many, there are a number of women in here who have volunteered and worked with Save-A-Life through the years. So you know what I'm talking about. Uh, The others, they want to know if they're pregnant, but they're very frightened. They have family. They're unwed. They may... You know, their family may object to the person they're with. Whatever the situation, they're completely frightened. They don't know what to do, but they're pretty sure they're pregnant. Save a life deals with those women as well. The third are women who want to know if they're pregnant so they can have an abortion. All right. Save a life deals with these women, but their primary goal is to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is their primary goal is to bring these women to a, a place in their life where they realize their need for Christ and bring them to Christ, okay? Bob was working with this organization in Auburn. And now, to bring us up today, that's kind of a backstory. He had, as the years went on, he transferred to the Birmingham area, and he is now an area director working out of Shelby County. He travels all over the country dealing, or not dealing with, working with, pregnancy resource centers and, and such in fact just a little side rabbit trail he told me the other day he said he said Philip he said it's it's discouraging sometimes when I go see these people who need help with their organization and he said I'm working with them and I say well how do you present the gospel I said, well we really don't talk about God unless somebody brings it up you know oh that's sad so Save a Life is not that organization. All right, they present the gospel. That's their their deal. But anyway, he is in Shelby County as an area director, and uh, we, like I said, we stay in touch. But there's something about Save a Life that has always kind of ticked in my brain. Kind of bothered me a little bit about Save a Life. They do a wonderful job with women. A outstanding. Continue to support them, please. I continue to support them. But my mother used to say something to me that has stuck with me through the years. And, you know, as Bob, excuse me, Thad said, you know, there are things that your parents tell you that sticks with you through the years. You can remember it vividly. But my mother, when I was a teenager, Teenage boy. She used to tell me all the time in an effort to remind me that, yes, you have a responsibility. She, she used to tell me, she said, son, for every unwed mother out there, there is a father. In other words, a woman does not get pregnant by herself. A girl does not get pregnant by themselves. There is a male involved. All right. So that is what has always kind of stuck in my brain a little bit. It just kind of bothered me. Like, they do a great job with the women. What do they do for the fathers? Well, a couple of weeks ago, Jackie and I went to the Save a Life Banquet in Shelby County. And we were there, and Bob got up to speak. And he talked about what all they had done this past year, as they usually do. And he said, for the coming year, I've got a burden. I've got a burden for these fathers of these peep, these women, these girls that come in. We need to have something for the fathers. I went, uh-oh. Well, move the story along. I met with Bob this past week and... He said, I need a man that can spend some time. We need to put some program together, some kind of program together, some kind of structure together that can deal with the fathers of these babies that they save. And so I guess I'm that man. (laughs) Uh, We don't know how. We are, I for one am scared to death because I know that it's, I don't even know where to start hardly. He has assured me he has a little bit of material that we can start with and go from there. We have put a timeline of about one year on this to see what we can get done within this year of getting something put together so that we will have, they will have something to give the fathers, something to counsel the fathers on. Because uh, bear in mind, most of the women they deal with are very young. And so the fathers are usually very young. They have no support at home, many of them. Just, it's really bad situations. But what I would like to ask the congregation, as you think about it, pray for me as I go through this. We don't need financial. God has taken care of my finances. I'm uh, uh, God is well taken care of my, I'm not worried about finances. So we're not asking you to give more. If the Lord leads you to give more to save a life, so be it. I have no problem with that. But, but I don't need the finances, okay? God's taking care of me. He's got that part handled. But as you think about it, pray that, as we put this together, that it would be something that we can use to disciple these young men who come in, whose significant other, so to speak, comes in, and the woman would be or the girl would be pregnant, and we would know what to do and how to deal with them. But in that i 'm reminded. This song just kept rolling through my mind this week. Uh, some of you know, I think it's my all-time favorite Christian group. There's a group called the Collingsworth family, and if you've not heard them, you're missing a blessing because these people, man, they, it's funny. We went to see them at uh, at a Baptist church in Georgia one time, and uh, he's, uh, Phil Collins said, uh, can you imagine we're Methodists singing in the Baptist church about the blood of Jesus? I mean, it just, but they do. They are they are as sound as most any gospel group you'll ever hear. But they have a song, and uh, the name of it is, I Can Trust Jesus. And a line in it says, I'm his child. I can trust Jesus. He's never failed me once. So, That's what we're depending on is his leading in dealing with these young men. Thank you.
1: Well, as Thad was talking about evangelism and discipleship, um, the one message that uh, we need to carry is, was, <laughs> I was thinking of Isaiah 45:22 22, in Acts, it says, in Isaiah, it says, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved, for I am God, and there is no other. And Acts 4, Peter says, There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And so that's the message. There's only one way. Jesus Christ is it. What are we going to do? This is what I tell people when, at some point, as I'm discipling or evangelizing, the Lord gives me opportunity to do that, is what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Because you're going to meet him one day. Just as sure as that sun is coming up tomorrow, it's a reality. You can believe it, not believe it. It's happening. You're going to stand before Jesus Christ one day. What are you going to do with him? Do you accept him or do you reject him because your eternity hinges on that question and there is no other name. So let's all stand and let's worship the Lord again. Just say it, Josh. All right, well, we'll just go without the click. Go ahead, Leonard.
2: His praise resounds beyond the stars Et-
0: Tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Great part is that you and I believe He is if we're in Christ and we're going to bow down because we want to. But everyone will bow. What a sight that'll be. Um, two or three things I need to leave you with. Um, first of all, if you go home and you wrestle through that other sermon, please note the chapter break. Uh, is probably not real good. You know, chapter breaks um, aren't inspired. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, goes with the last part of chapter 10 through an argument that actually starts in chapter 8. Which, uh, if you want to go back and read that, you can. But it's really on Christian liberty. And so, what Paul is doing is telling them to imitate me as I imitate Christ in the context of Christian liberty. It's a great verse. Have fun studying that this afternoon. Second announcement is that um, tonight's uh, discipleship group that meets here uh, for Revelation will not meet. And so um, you have a free night and you can study the sermon that you've been given. All right. And I do not remember what the last one was. (laughs) Must not be that important. All right. Uh, great to see you guys today. I encourage you to continue with your reading as we approach the book of Hebrews and James. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that you have uh, saved us. We are yours, and uh, we belong to you. And, and Lord, thank you that you, you haven't left us alone. And Lord, I pray you would encourage us. Um, I remember now what it was. And it fits right along with what I'm about to say to you, Lord. That if one will reach one, Lord, help us to think through that this week. That we would be open to say, Lord, just put somebody in my life. They may be saved already, but need to grow, and I can carry them through that process. Or it may be someone who not saved, never heard of Jesus Christ, had never heard of the gospel. Lord, help us to be committed. Just one person, that we would pray for that person. And help us to know, Lord, you're going to answer that prayer. And so you're going to challenge us, just like you've challenged Phil. I just thank you so much for his obedience, his willing to step out of the boat in faith and trust you. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the time we've had together today. We commit our lives afresh and anew to you today. Help us to be about making disciples. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Dismiss.